0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, my guest is Professor Corey Bretschneider. We'll be talking about his new book, When the State Speaks, What Should It Say? How Democracies Can Protect Expression and Promote Equality, which was just published with Princeton University Press. Corey is professor of political science and professor of philosophy at Brown University. Liberal democracies are in the business of protecting individuals and their rights. Central among these are rights to free expression, freedom of association, and freedom of conscience. In exercising these rights, some citizens will come to hold beliefs and viewpoints that are fundamentally at odds with the core values of a liberal democracy. That is, in a free society, some citizens will come to endorse views which reject the ideal of a society of free and equal citizens. Now, such cases seem to put the liberal democratic state in a bind, it must permit citizens to adopt and express illiberal and anti-democratic viewpoints or else violate its commitment to the core freedoms it claims to prize. Yet the spread of such viewpoints, and sometimes even their very expression, can violate the rights of other citizens and undermine the stability of a democratic society. So what should the state do? In his new book, Corey Bretschneider proposes a view he calls value democracy to address this kind of quandary. He claims that although the democratic state must permit the adoption and expression of even hateful views, it nonetheless can object to and criticize them. That is, Brettschneider makes a case for thinking that the state is permitted to, and in some contexts must, employ its expressive power to combat hateful viewpoints this book hence addresses fundamental philosophical questions concerning free speech equality liberty and the authority of the democratic state so let's turn to the interview hello cory Bretschneider.
1: uh hi bob it's a pleasure to talk to you
0: how are you doing this morning
1: good great great uh, uh looking forward to this discussion
0: Great. Well, thank you for joining us um, today on New Books in Philosophy. My guest is Corey Bretschneider, author of the new book, When the State Speaks, What Should It Say? How Democracies Can Protect Expression and Promote Equality. Corey's book has just been published by Princeton University Press. Now, this is a relatively short book that takes up some very big questions concerning the role of the democratic state in promoting and defending the basic values of a democratic society. Brett Schneider argues that in addition to its coercive power, the state wields expressive power and that this distinctive kind of power must be exercised when dealing with political groups that operate within democracy, but nonetheless openly oppose the ideal of a free and equal citizenry. The book is filled with uh, analyses of, famous legal cases, and some real-world policy disputes. So there's uh, a lot to discuss here. But before we get into the details of your book, Corey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in these topics?
1: Uh, Thanks, Bob. Uh, I think my interest in in political and legal philosophy goes back to my uh, first year at Pomona College, I was introduced to political philosophy by a terrific philosopher there called Paul Hurley, uh, and he taught a class where we very carefully went through uh, uh, Law's Empire, among other texts, and went very slowly and saw the architecture of the argument. And I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but at that at that moment, I think it was in, the, in that class I decided that if I could somehow have a career reading and talking about political philosophy and, and philosophy of law, that would that would be the ideal. Um, I uh, have a a degree in political thought and intellectual history from uh, Cambridge University, which was also, I think, an enlightening program. It's a program more focused on the history of political thought. Uh, And then I I went on uh, to be a high school teacher, actually, in New York City uh, at the United Nations School, where I taught uh, their international baccalaureate uh, philosophy. Uh, course, and that range from theology to epistemology to lots of political philosophy and philosophy of law. Uh, and then I think the experience teaching me convinced me that I wanted to to, to try to do this uh, in a university. And so I pursued both a um, PhD in, in politics at, at Princeton and their program in political philosophy, Uh, My degree is in politics, but I work closely as well with people in the philosophy department. Uh, And I also, at the same time, um, I also pursued uh, a law degree at uh, Stanford University. Uh, And I've been at Brown. This is my first uh, uh, university job, and I've been here since uh, 2002 and love the community. Uh, we have um, a great group both in political theory and we, we're, I think, unique in that we work very closely with our colleagues in, in the philosophy department as well and running a bi-weekly uh, workshop uh, on political philosophy. Uh, my interests, I guess, um, you know, are really at the intersection always of... Uh, political philosophy and and very applied constitutional law. Uh, And in this book, I really try to do both at the same time, to take quite seriously the cases on the ground uh, about free speech, religious freedom, the the, uh, religion clauses, the free exercise and establishment clauses, uh, but to bring a frame of uh, political philosophy and and wider questions about legitimacy uh, to bear. And my hope in the book is... Is to uh, is to kind of offer a new way, I guess, of thinking about free speech uh, that avoids the kind of common trap that one is either committed to prohibiting uh, uh, hateful viewpoints or anti-liberal viewpoints uh, or protecting them. And the theme of the book is that we can protect these viewpoints, uh, and also the state in its official capacities can also criticize and should criticize. Uh, some of those views that are deeply illiberal, and in some extreme cases, even condemn them. Uh, the book also, I guess, takes off from a, a earlier uh, project called Democratic Rights: The Substance of Self-Government, uh, which makes the argument that um, there's been a, a kind of too too much of a focus uh, in democratic theory on thinking about ideal procedures. And my move is to say there's something more fundamental than these ideal procedures, uh, and that's democratic values. And once we see substantive values as fundamental to the meaning of democracy, we can also understand why sometimes even ideal procedures need to be constrained in order to protect uh, uh, democratic substantive rights that emerge also from these values. And so in that first book, I defend a robust role for the Supreme Court. Uh, books are tied together by this idea of a, a value theory of democracy, or what I call in this book value democracy, uh, a substantive conception of democracy uh, uh, in which uh, democratic procedures are undergirded by a set of substantive substantive values.
0: Well, excellent. Um, you know, somewhere John Dewey, who... Um, uh, was himself a high school teacher before he pursued his graduate work. Somewhere, Dewey says that he wishes that all PhDs in philosophy would have to would be forced to spend at least a year <laughs> teaching high school. Um, so <laughs> I left. I, mean, I
1: have to say, you know, it, it was just a, an ideal job. There's something about that age, and maybe this is what Dewey is referencing, where we're at age, you know, sixteen, seventeen. There. They're not spoiled on academics. They don't use philosophers as adjectives. They just go right to the ideas, and their minds are ready for it. And so, for me, it was really a, a thrilling experience that just made me want to do this even more.
0: Well, excellent. Um, so let's 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 get into the details of the book. Uh, you already s- set up things very nicely. So um, why don't we begin where um, the book begins? And um, uh, the book begins with uh, a description, or with descriptions, I should say of two dystopic political images, Mm -hmm. um, what you call on the one hand the invasive state and on the other hand the hateful society. Um, And you're interested in um, uh, a conception of democracy that allows the state to avoid both of these dystopias um, and this sort of image of these two um, uh, bad things lurking sort of runs uh, throughout the book. It gives us the conceptual background for your discussion uh, and the background to your own view, which, as you mentioned, you call value democracy. Um, why don't we begin there and tell us a little bit about these two dystopias?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, the, the, the kind of first thought is that often in theorizing we start by thinking about ideals or utopias, but it, in, in free speech, I think a lot of the uh, animating concerns, uh, both in political philosophy, but also in more on the ground, the the rules that we use in politics and in in various regimes, I think are motivated by one of two two fears. This is the argument of the the book. Um, so I think that the traditional liberal fear, uh, the reason why what I call in the book neutralists are those who defend a v- view of not only viewpoint neutrality, but sometimes the even more extreme view that the state itself should be neutral on questions of values. Um, that w- The fear is really, or the image, I think, is that if the state were to take a position, were to take a viewpoint, uh, that could potentially lead to uh, a kind of police state in which uh, police cars were roaming around, listening into people's conversations, uh, and maybe even storming into the household uh, at the moment that uh, uh, views were were expressed at odds with the uh, fundamental tenets of the state. So even a, a, a good set of values, about you know, a, a little set of values, imagine. Uh, that There was a, a, a kind of set of, of police cars sur- surveying households at dinnertime, listening for people to say illiberal things, uh, and that would trigger uh, an invasion by the police or an arrest, or, or even the mere fact of listening in, I think, uh, is enough to, to give liberals serious uh, pause, traditional liberals. Uh, and that, I think, is, is the kind of animating concern be- behind both the doctrine of viewpoint neutrality, that we shouldn't ban any viewpoint um, with the force of law, but also with the sometimes related view that the liberal state uh, shouldn't shouldn't take positions of its own on matters of controversy. Uh, so, as you say, I call that the dystopia of the invasive state. It's the it's the the kind of state feared by liberals. Um, but in the rest of the world, I think there's a very different kind of dystopia outside the United States. The, the rule that I mentioned, the legal rule in our First Amendment jurisprudence of viewpoint neutrality uh, is not shared by uh, uh, the rest of uh, the democracies in the world. To the contrary, uh, there is a balancing approach uh, which says that free speech, yes, but it's got limits when fundamental uh, democratic uh, or, or other values are, are threatened. And I think the dystopia there too is a is a different one, but one that's uh, as powerful an image in a lot of ways. Uh, and I call that dystopia uh, the hateful society. Um, unlike the invasive state, the hateful society uh, is defined by uh, very robust neutralist protections. All viewpoints are protected. There are the most robust civil liberties protections that you can imagine. Uh, but people in the culture use those liberties. Uh, uh, to express uh, the most heinous viewpoints about each other. So imagine in the hateful society, there's a, just a prevalent racism uh, among uh, people about the inferiority uh, of people of African descent. Um, there is a pervasive sexism, imagine too, and misogyny, which uh, in which there might be technically equal rights for women, but where they're continually disparaged in the culture and in a set of beliefs. Uh, I think the the worry in the rest of the world is not just that that's a bad thing, the hateful society, but that it creates conditions in which uh, people are silenced uh, uh, through uh, because of the norms of civil society uh, where women and, and minorities don't feel entitled to speak as equals, even if they might formally be guaranteed those rights as a matter of law. Uh, and that kind of silencing effect, and the sense of psychological harm that can come from uh, a hateful society, I think, is part of the animating concern in leading to these uh, more restricted policies when when it comes to um, limits on free speech and and the, even the banning of certain viewpoints. Uh, when I when I give the uh, version of the talk about the book in the U.S., uh, I think. People really relate to the invasive state. That sounds familiar to them, and they're more skeptical about the worry about the hateful society. But I've given this talk in Australia, um, very recently in Mexico City, uh, several times also very recently in England. And I find that outside the United States, almost universally, it's the opposite, that they're really the, the animating worry is, the, is, is of the hateful society, uh, even more so than the invasive state uh, so that tells me that I might be on to something, that they're both, to me, real concerns that a political theory has to address. And one of the problems in free speech theorizing, I think, is that we've focused uh, – that theories have tend to focus on on one of those two dystopias rather than on both of them.
0: Well, excellent. Um, uh, and I think that, 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 that feature about um, the kind of reaction you get uh, in different democratic um, – countries is 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 revealing and, and and interesting so let me then ask about um uh at least the, the 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 launching part for the positive view which you call value democracy because um it seems that uh the central move in getting this um uh this this third you know steering between the two dystopias view off the ground is to um uh revise uh, something which I think undergirds um a lot of the uh, liberal democratic thought, at least in the american context um that 's the kind of thought that is worried about the invasive state rather than the hateful society um and that 's the public private distinction um and so uh one of the things that um is is first taken up by you um, is a reconceptualization of the public and private and a critique, I think, of, um, standard ways of thinking about that distinction. So why don't you tell us about how that argument works?
1: Uh, thanks, uh, Robert. And I think that that's exactly the, 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 right next question to ask the, the, the rigidity, I think of some versions of the public private distinction, um, I think, uh, that are, that are commonplace. I and, mean, picture of what makes something private and what makes something public stem in many ways from the fear of the invasive state. So there is a move, I think, among a lot of people to think, look, we don't want the invasive state. And so the way to think about within a liberal democracy the distinction between what is public and what is private um, is to is to cordon off uh, as irrelevant to politics and protected from politics uh, the household, uh, civil society, to, in some versions, libertarian versions, uh, businesses as well, and to see those spaces as, as private spaces that are not touched by, uh, by, what? by, by government and by the public. Um, and that picture, I think, is a very powerful one of the family and of civil society and of the market as, a, as private and the state as, as having its own more limited terrain, uh, I think there's something to it. It's not that I think there's nothing about it. In the book, um, I take seriously the concerns about the invasive state, especially when it comes to coercion. Uh, so when you think about um, – uh, just to give an example that I begin Chapter 2 with, uh, uh, imagine a, um, a family that's deeply racist and is raising its uh, children uh, to be racist. But they're not abusing the children physically. Um, should that child be removed? Uh, in Canada, there was a very similar case uh, that caused a very live uh, debate. But on my view, when it comes to removing the child, the coercive force and the impact that has, uh, uh, both on the child but also on the parents, uh, that that is something that we have to be very leery of. Uh, it is true that sometimes the coercive force of the state interferes uh in the most private of realms um, so uh if you commit murder in your bedroom uh you still are rightly convicted of murder uh the public private distinction uh i don't think anybody thinks should extend uh to protecting and making irrelevant all behavior uh in the household uh, but there has to be leeway uh, when it comes to the coercive force of the state. Uh, and I think in that case, for instance, that if there is an, an actual abuse of the child, it's just an uh, a expression of the family's racist views, uh, that coercive removal is is a real uh, problem, that, that there is a right against it. And so when it comes to rights against the forceful removal of, of um of children or when it comes to arresting people for having these views expressed in their home, uh, I'm very uh, traditionally liberal. I think there have to be very, the most robust privacy protections. And I think that the rights of freedom of expression have to protect all um, viewpoints, even uh, heinous ones expressed uh, within, the, within the family or, as I'll argue later, even in the public sphere. Um, but I think that that shouldn't dictate the question of what is public and what is private there is a, a before we get to the question of state action, uh, there is a sense in which, in that household uh, the the views that are being uh, being taught to children conflict with uh, the views uh, that all children in liberal democracies I think should be educated into. Uh uh I don't think that the 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 uh liberal democratic state can be neutral when it comes to defending uh and and recognizing that its own viewpoint is being attacked uh uh by that uh by that family. Uh the Ku Klux Klan, to take an example, I have an image of my head. There's a, a kind of famous picture of the Klan a Klan member kind of ducking down to take care of uh one of his uh children uh after a rally. Um Isn't violating rights uh, the the person, uh, sorry, doesn't, I don't think that family should be subject again to child removal. That that would violate uh, the kind of privacy protections and speech protections that I'm going to defend in the book. But it's important to point out that some of these viewpoints that are being uh, perpetuated, even in the most private of spheres, conflict with the ideals of liberal democracy. And in that sense, they are, to use my terminology, publicly relevant. Uh, you can see this very clearly with uh, uh, Nazi families or with the, the, this Klan picture that I gave you. The Ku Klux Klan is founded, and in Virginia versus Black there's an excellent discussion of this by, by Justice O'Connor, in opposition to the idea of the 14th Amendment in the United States' guarantee of equal protection of the laws. They are opposed to equality under law for African Americans. Uh, What more graphic evidence do we need of a belief system that is at odds with the foundation, I think, of liberal democracy? If liberal democracy means anything, it has to include the idea of equality under law regardless of race. Um, And I'll expand that later, but it's at minimum that. Uh, so on my view, even though there is a set of robust rights protections for uh, the expression of deeply illiberal and what I call hateful viewpoints within the household, um, they are not irrelevant to matters of pop politics. The first step I want to say is show is just to demonstrate that even viewpoints that are protected can conflict with fundamental liberal democratic values. Now, some people think that just leads us to a paradox that they're publicly relevant, Um, uh, but that the state, because it protects them, can't do anything. And so the mantra of opponents of liberal democracy is that situation that I just described uh, turns liberalism into an anemic political philosophy, or uh, to use the famous phrase often attributed to Robert Frost, uh, I'm not sure that he said it, uh, it's worried that a liberal is a person who can't take their own side in an argument. Uh, At this stage of the book, I'm just trying to identify the, the conflict between sets of beliefs that are protected from liberal coercion, from coercion by the liberal democratic state, but that still are publicly relevant and that they conflict with fundamental liberal democratic values and norms.
0: So the thought then is that um, if there are viewpoints or ideas or beliefs that meet some some standard of public relevance, then even though they may be... Expressed only within um, spaces that are generally regarded to be private. That's right. Nonetheless, the state has some um, authority uh, to, in, in some way, engage with them.
1: I think that's right. I mean, one one way, at least, at this stage of the argument, chapter two. Uh, because we haven't quite we haven't gotten to the hard problem of what the state is supposed to do, but I use the term authority another way to put it is just that the state has a legitimate interest in in caring about those views, and ultimately i'm going to argue in seeking to to challenge them and even transform them
0: okay well good let's pick up on that then and and let's let's move then to the to the what you just called the hard question of what the state is permitted to do so um In addition to this principle of public relevance and the way it sort of recasts the public-private distinction, um, another key element of value democracy involves this distinction between the coercive and expressive powers of the state. Um, And I take it that crucial to this thought is um, the, the idea that the state can engage in a kind of Reason giving or accounting or justification or what you call persuasion um, that aims explicitly at trying to revise views or change the beliefs uh, of its citizens when they even in public – I'm sorry, non-public or private contexts uh, express commitments to um, illiberal ideals. Um, so, and, and the crucial thought here, I take it, is that um, in engaging in these persuasive activities or these critical activities, um, that is, in exercising exercising its expressive power, the state is not coercing anyone. Is that the view?
1: I think that's right. I mean, one way maybe to to start in laying out the view. I mean, I think you know, d- depending on what you lead with, the view can seem more liberal or more illiberal. <laughs> Uh, and some of the listeners, I think, might worry that because of the talk of persuasion, that I'm abandoning again what I what I tried to start with—the uh, part of the public-private distinction that I not only want to preserve, but that I want to preserve in the strongest pers- possible terms—and that's the, the when it comes to coercion, the robust rights protections. So I think it makes sense to to begin there and to talk about the the really I, I think strong limits on what the liberal state can do. Uh, and then I think to add in this, this, I think we could see then the space that's left for what I call democratic persuasion. Uh, let me say too about the coercion, just to emphasize the liberal democratic or, I mean, really distinctly American, uh, kinds of protection that I want to defend, that I defend the most robust, um, protections when it comes to freedom of expression that exist in the world. In fact, the only place that the rule that I'm going to defend the rule of viewpoint neutrality, the only place where it is instantiated in law is in the American First Amendment free speech context. The rest of the world is much more limited in its protection of free speech. So my ideal is to begin with the strongest possible r- rule and then to ask where the room, if any, and I think there is room for the state to criticize some of these views uh, that are protected. So the, the rule of viewpoint neutrality, I think, is best illustrated by the case of Virginia versus Black, where the court considers two instances of cross-burning Uh, In one, a cross is burned on the lawn of an African-American family in retaliation for a fight earlier in the day. Uh, And what the court basically says is that it looks like this might be an instance of a direct threat, and that might be uh, banned as a matter of law. I mean, there's a set of difficult legal questions, but that's really the principle that comes out of that set of facts. But it also looks at a Ku Klux Klan rally on a, on a field. And this is uh, taking place in public. Uh, uh, and on the field, uh, the Klan burns across and they you know, have a rally where they say all sorts of disparaging things about blacks and Jews, um, the kind of thing, I guess, that gets said at a Klan rally. And what the court says there is it's a heinous – they say – they don't quite say it's a heinous viewpoint. But what I would say is it's a heinous viewpoint. But I'm with the court in the view that it gets protection because in a liberal democracy, everyone should have the right to say any viewpoint about politics or about art or about a variety of things. Uh, And uh, part of that is just in the democratic tradition, and this is partly – the arguments I make in the previous book, people have to be free as autonomous and equal individuals to hear all arguments and to make up their mind for themselves, what kind of policies they want to endorse uh, in the democratic public realm. Uh, And that requires hearing everything. So that's all a way of saying that I am defending the most robust possible rule uh, of free speech that exists in the world. Now within that, what else is to be said? Uh, It seems to me that if we're going to have that extreme rule, viewpoint neutrality, that the liberal democratic state also has to have a way of criticizing some of those views that are protected. And in particular, I want to come back to the Ku Klux Klan. It's a little bit muted, but O'Connor pointing out in the opinion that the Ku Klux Klan is founded in opposition to the Equal Protection Clause really brings into bright relief Uh, Clear relief the idea that some of these views that are protected are just at odds with the fundamental values of democracy. And so it seems to me that it's got to be the case that the liberal democratic state, if it's going to have these robust rights protections, also has to have a way of expressing the reasons for these rights and criticizing views uh, that are at odds with it. And those views are relevant partly because of the worry that uh, in protecting them uh, the liberal democratic state might be confused with being complicit in them or even endorsing them. Uh, You saw that for instance in the case of the Muslim video um, the anti-Muslim video that was made in California. A lot of the Muslim world wondered how could the US endorse this set of views and that that was the kind of call for limiting the First Amendment when it came to the most offensive views. Uh, As I've said I would defend the right to make such a video and the, the, the most robust rule in free speech jurisprudence, the doctrine of viewpoint neutrality, but we also have to have a way, I think, of criticizing those views that are protected, that are fundamentally at odds with uh, those of, of liberal democracy. The first place is just pure, I mean, just take pure reason, Uh, or pure criticism by the government. So in that Muslim video case, uh, the State Department issued uh, a criticism of the video, and it took out ads distancing the U.S. position from that video. Uh, Those kind of statements by public officials, I think, if you see their legitimacy, they give the first instantiation of what, uh, democratic persuasion, as I call it, in defense of liberal democratic values might look like criticizing some of these views, even at the same time that we uh, protect them. And we do this all the time in civic education, uh, uh, in public holidays. We don't have Bull Connor Day; uh, we have Martin Luther King Day to take a side, I think, on uh, the questions of, of segregation in the American South. Uh, so. Democratic persuasion is within the most robust limits of free speech protection uh, but it aggressively advances democratic values and criticizes uh, some of these views that are hold held uh, held by uh, by by uh, what groups and individuals that are that have beliefs at odds with the fundamental values of liberal democracy
0: okay so um, let me ask one sort of follow-up on this. Um, uh... Because I take it that um, at some points, your the view of democratic persuasion um, is really you know, puts an emphasis on the persuasion part. It's not just about distancing the the government from certain views that its citizens rightfully, but perhaps lamentably, express.
1: Right.
0: It does that for the purpose of persuading.
1: Mm.
0: Who? The people who hold those views to change their mind or persuading the people who are on the fence about which view to hold, that they should hold the free and equal citizenship view? Um, so um, maybe this is a little bit of a tricky question. Uh so who is the, the, the who who is who are we who is the government supposed to be trying to persuade when it? That's
1: actually a great question, and it gets to the heart of it. I mean, part of the view is about expression, um, democratic expression, expressing the liberal democratic state's own values and clarifying it as opposed to those who reject them. But I think that part of expression has to be. Uh, a defense of the values. I mean, this, it's not just that the liberal democratic state is expressing them in a positive sense of stating that these are the values of the liberal democratic state. The expression has to be about a commitment to these values as the right ones, at least for governing, uh, governing a society and for limiting government action. Uh, if they're the right values, it seems to me to follow that they should be defended when they're attacked. Uh, and as opposed to those, especially the most vicious opponents of the of the values, most robust uh, the, the right state is not just to say, hey, let me just say my view and you have yours, but is to defend them. And part of the defense, I think, has to be criticism of the opponents of uh, liberal democracy. Uh, the question of audience, I think, is a terrific one, too. And my answer is all of the above. Uh, realistically, a lot of people have pointed out you're not going to convince the Klan member. Um I think that might or might not be true, as we'll talk about soon i uh, i I have a more robust than just pure speech uh conception and and I have examples I think of where uh, what I call democratic persuasion, at least in its more robust form that includes eventually uh funding where where it does convince uh the addressee the second party. but I also want to just concede as you've pointed out that often the real audience is is third parties I mean right. the state when it speaks addressing a particular viewpoint that's at odds with it, but really it's speaking to third parties. And one of the worries is about complicity, about distancing uh, the state's view from these views that it protects, as I explained in the the Muslim video case. Uh, But I also think the Weimar problem has to be deeply uh, in our mind. The idea that liberal democratic states... Uh, when deeply illiberal views start to form and think again of the hateful society have a kind of instability and there's an obligation of liberal democracy not just to defend itself to to ensure that there's not complicity but to ensure the stability uh, what Frank John Rawls calls the stability for the right reasons of the regime to ensure that they are spread uh, throughout the society. Uh, and that is a, a task, not of a, the addressee directly, but of third parties who are who are listening to the conversation between the state and those who are being criticized. I also think that much of democratic persuasion doesn't have the second-person forum, but it really is just directly addressed to the citizenry at, at large. So the Martin Luther King holiday, it's partly about, I think, saying to the connors of the world that this is not the view of the state, that legal segregation— is at odds with the equal protection clause, but it 's also about sending a message an educative message uh, to the citizenry at large, clarifying the values of a liberal democracy so it is all of the above, and i think certainly as if not more important than the second party addressee is is really the the address to, to to the nation as a whole
0: okay well that, that that's that's helpful we'll, we'll we'll get back to this issue um uh in in a in a minute, but first i want to sort of ask um, about uh, something you alluded to, which is the the um, the question about s- the use of s- state subsidies. So um, as you point out in, in what you were just saying, that um, part of the state's expressive function is the criticism, the giving the reasons that support um, democratic ideals, perhaps um, uh, uh, trying to persuade uh, citizens not to take up anti-democratic ideals by means of arguments and and uh, uh, rational appeals. Um, but you're also uh, committed to the view that um, part of the state's expressive function um, is um, exercised uh, in its choices about um, funding and subsidies. Um, and one of the instruments that the democratic state has as at it, its disposal in trying to uh, deal with um, uh, illiberal groups within it is um, to create disincentives of an economic sort or to create incentives of an economic sort uh, to change. Uh, can you tell us uh, about why subsidy counts as expression? Uh,
1: I, I think that's, that's a great question. I mean I'll, I'll say too um, that – a lot of, especially for those in constitutional law, and I, I really tried to write the book to, to bring together fundamental questions in free speech, jurisprudence, and questions in political philosophy. A lot of the real questions about state speech uh, are tied to the subsidy issue. Um, so let me just um, ha- help to continue to frame that question about the use of, of state subsidy by sure. talking about some cases. Uh, and the thesis, as you say, is that I think that the state – should be free to both use subsidy to pursue democratic persuasion, Uh, even if in its most basic form, my first intuition is, uh, look, you know, you have to pay for the microphones, right? So there is some subsidy that goes into all forms of state speech. But more controversially, I think that the state can withdraw subsidy uh, in order to send the message of criticism uh, to groups that reject uh, democratic values. So I'll take a what I consider to be an easy case, although it's controversial, uh, as I'll explain now, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, and then move on to, to the most recent uh, con- contemporary case.
0: Good.
1: The case of Bob Jones University uh, involves a southern uh, school that allows African-Americans into its institution, uh, but they deny the right to um, uh, of the students. Uh, uh, they, didn't, they, they, they ban uh, it, for members of the school interracial dating. Uh, they also ban uh, membership in the NAACP or advocacy of the right to interracial marriage. Uh, uh, this is taking place at a time before the Supreme Court um, uh, um, in the midst, I should say, of, of, of a lot of controversies about the meaning of uh, the Equal Protection Clause and the, and the substantive due process rights uh, to, 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 to interracial marriage. Uh, at any rate, the, the, um, the school try, is trying to comply with the letter of the law by not discriminating in admissions, but still to pursue its, um, frankly racist, um, uh, uh ideology through its internal policies. Uh, with the IRS, uh, this is during the Nixon administration, uh, decides to do the, the Nixon administration, IRS is revoke uh, the 501c3 status uh, of the institution. Uh, 501c3 status is a nonprofit status uh, that that uh, gives a number of tax benefits, including, to my mind, most importantly, uh, the the ability of donors to deduct the donation from their taxes. So it's a kind of indirect subsidy. Uh, the court's holding in that opinion it's challenged on free speech grounds, but the court's holding. I think – and that that case I think of as one of my fundamental uh, starting points in claiming uh, that, look, the denial of a subsidy, in this case the 501c3 status and the related uh, tax deductibility uh, rights – Uh, is not the same as as a ban. Uh, And I don't think that the IRS in that case is is, uh, limiting Bob Jones' uh, rights to free speech. Uh, To the contrary, I think that it is promoting the ideal uh, of equality under law, of public equality for African Americans as well as whites, and criticizing Bob Jones for its internal policies is inconsistent uh, with that kind of public equality. So that's my kind of intuitive, I think, go-to case uh, there's more recently – I mean I, this is an ongoing controversy of, of – of, um, especially involving universities and, and pub, public institutions, uh, how funds should be used and whether they can be revoked in some instances without re- violating free speech. Uh, it is not my usual uh, crowd that I speak to, but I was fortunate enough to be on a panel at the uh, uh, Federalist Society National uh, Convention, And actually your listeners can see this online, uh, with one of the best um, uh, First Amendment lawyers in the country, Michael McConnell, uh, and uh, former judge and now professor uh, Michael McConnell argued a case called Christian Legal Society uh, not too long ago before the Supreme Court, uh, Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. Uh, that case concerned uh, Hastings Law School revoking funds uh, uh, to an organization, the Christian Legal Society, uh, that allowed uh, gay students to be members of its group, but that disallowed them from being uh, uh, leaders in the group. Uh, mm-hmm. and what McConnell argued is that the revocation of subsidy was a was a violation of their uh, free association and free speech rights. Now, to my mind, the way that I argued it at, at the conference, and I say this in the book, uh, if the group would have been sanctioned in some way in the sense of being punished or being banned from campus or being thrown out of the university of a member of the group, uh, that would be one kind of case about coercion. Uh, but denying the subsidies associated with uh, the case centers around whether it's an, going to be recognized as an official student organization and that carries with it things like money and the right to use a specific campus email uh, listserv, uh, denial of those subsidies, I think, uh, is entirely appropriate. What the, the school is doing, the way I would have argued the case this is and the way I would have decided it, uh, this isn't what the opinion says – uh, is I would have said, look, that just like in Bob Jones, uh, uh, there is no right to a subsidy. And in fact, the state has the entitlement to speak through its subsidy power to defend its own fundamental messages. And in this instance, the message, as in Bob Jones, of non-discrimination is a message that the state wants to use its own funds uh, uh, to send. And so to me, that's not a violation of free speech or free association in a way that a ban, uh, a ban might be uh, or a punishment.
0: So let me, um, let me pick up on this because I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the similar kind of issue that was going on at my university, Vanderbilt, uh, last year with student organizations of a religious sort that um, had rules involving um, whether um, homosexual students could um, join the religious group, particularly when the religious group is centered around a religious identity that is opposed – um, uh, to homosexuality as a, a morally permissible lifestyle or practice or identification—are you familiar with any of this?
1: I'm not at the, not familiar with the Vanderbilt case, no, but I, I uh, might have heard something, but but not well enough. I'm not versed in
0: Well, it was interesting because one um, one um, and and your analysis here. I mean, I, I could I think anticipate um, that you what you'd like to say, and it seems to me like a perfectly sensible thing to say. But one of the extra wrinkles that was introduced um, has to do with um, uh, equitable um, distribution of subsidy money and um, the students of some of the religious organizations that were threatened with losing their charter or losing their subsidy from the university, um, one of their sort of complaints was that, um, well – you're subsidizing other religious groups right. um, and you're withholding subsidy from our group right. because you don't because you're not approving of our internal values um, but this is the kind of group that we are um, and um so they 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 had a a concern about um, uh, uh, that that the institution ought to distribute or exercise its power. In uh, distributing subsidy money in a way um, that was equitable That's and didn't and didn't single out um, or didn't evaluate the internal doctrines of particular groups, does that introduce a new wrinkle I- or consideration?
1: Yeah. To frame the argument, I mean, uh, it's very helpful, I think. And in fact, that's exactly the debate, I think, in the First Amendment literature. So um, the the doctrine that the, the Supreme Court and, you know, the court's cases are about public universities because you need state action to trigger these First Amendment claims. But as a matter of principle, I don't see why it wouldn't also apply in the in the Vanderbilt case, the same sorts of issues. But the doctrine that the court relies on, and that's very close to what you, you you said sometimes is this what's called the limited public forum and the idea of the limited public forum is that there's an analogy between these sorts of subsidies and the distribution of funds when the the state is inviting in or in your case a public private university a variety of different groups to compete for funds uh that there's a a neutral rule that should apply just as we shouldn't ban people Parks, depending on the substance of what you're saying, Um, uh, so uh, in a case called Rosenberg,er for instance, uh, there was a religious group that was excluded from funding, and the court said uh, this is really a a, a discrimination based on a viewpoint Uh, in Christian legal society. That's exactly what Michael McConnell argued as well. Is that um, that and and the defender those who the Christian Legal Society, is once you set up the funds in a way to distribute them, uh, the funds have to be distributed in a way that's equal without regard to viewpoint. Um, And the court went halfway in a bizarre opinion, I think, that Michael McConnell is not satisfied with and that I also am not satisfied with, although for different reasons. Uh, They they said something that I just find incoherent. They said um, there is an obligation to distribute the funds in a viewpoint-neutral way, But the principle of tolerance that Hastings Law School is using, or more specifically their all-comers policy that says that everybody has to be included in each group, is a viewpoint neutral rule. Hmm. But to me, look, that just confuses the idea of viewpoint neutrality uh, and the idea of tolerance. Uh, Right. see that tolerance is not a neutral idea, I think there's a very, very common mistake uh, in political philosophy and in law uh, that tolerance is a viewpoint-neutral idea. But in order to see that it's not a uh, uh, viewpoint-neutral idea, uh, look at that Klan example that I gave before. These are people who are protected under a doctrine of viewpoint neutrality precisely because they're opposed to Hastings Law School or Vanderbilt's idea of tolerance. Um, so I think that the much cleaner way to, to go about this is to say that when it comes to free speech, uh, we have all sorts of rights against the state of bridging our freedom of speech when it acts coercively, when it bans us from doing certain things. But that's very different from a kind of positive uh, right with subsidy uh, that says that when the state's spending money, it has to do so without regard to viewpoint uh that just seems to me to be what to be a mis- to be a conflation of the right to free speech and an entitlement to subsidy the state should use uh its its subsidy power to endorse uh and discourage uh viewpoints that is at least in the extreme cases uh uh either um either defend or uh, to to not fund groups that oppose the state's most basic views. So a group on campus, a Klan group on campus, or a Nazi group, you know, that's fine if they want to uh, uh, have these views as a matter of law. But the idea that, that any university, included, especially a public university, is obligated to fund them just seems to me to really go in the neutralist direction in, in, in the other. Remember our rule of protecting these groups is unique in the world. Uh, and we need to have a mechanism, I think, to criticize them and to refuse to, to, to subsidize them. And subsidizing them along the lines of the limited public doc, forum doctrine seems to me to, to go way too far in, in the neutralist direction. I should say in the book, and I haven't mentioned this before, there's a limit on, on what I call democratic persuasion, the state's defense of its own values. Uh, I, I think it really has to be limited to, to a set of concerns about public equality and public autonomy uh, that it... It shouldn't be intervening in matters of reasonable disagreement. Uh, so that's why a lot of my examples might seem extreme is because that's really the place, I think, uh, uh, where the state has a, has a place in, in advancing its own viewpoint. I mean, I said controversy. That's not quite right because I think there are entitlements. There are equal rights uh, to gay and straight citizens just as there are uh, for blacks and whites. And just as there was controversy about this in the 60s, there's controversy about it now. But it does seem to me to be a matter of public equality. Uh, uh to promote ideals of uh equality under law for for not only for 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 based on on race but based on gender and sexual orientation as well
0: okay so let, let, let's pick up on, on on this kind of example um uh and we're moving now to 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 one of the later chapters last chapter of the book um where you take up particularly issues about religious freedom and freedom of expression when it comes to um, uh, religious convictions and the rest. Um, So you think that, if I'm getting you right, that uh, the democratic state should be in the business of, um, by means of its expressive power, uh, of convincing religious citizens, if they have views of a certain content, to revise their views. Um, Or to revise those aspects of their faith that are directly or strongly at odds with the ideal of free and equal citizenship. Um, And you spend uh, several pages uh, at the end of the book dealing with various kinds of objections uh, uh, to this kind of view. That the state doesn't only express and affirm its values but also tries to um, – In this case particularly not only address a third party um, that might be on the fence about whether to adopt religious views that reject the ideal of free and equal citizenship but it's actually aiming at revising the religious convictions from the inside as it were. Um, uh, Some of these objections that you consider come from religiously convicted sources, people with religious convictions who don't want the state Um, Messing with or trying to influence their internal doctrines, um, but then there's another set of objections that you anticipate coming from um, neutralist liberals that think that this is a violation of you know the state shouldn't have views about you know what people who have religious beliefs sh- should be believing. Um, can you run us through a little bit of of that debate because I think it's 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 very interesting. It's a very interesting way in which the book the book ends up.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think I end with it for for the following reason that, I mean, we've laid out most of the argument, we've bracketed the question of religion, and so now a subsequent question, and it seems to me to be appropriate to ask it now, is, look, isn't there an exception to what you're saying, all of what you've said about the public-private distinction, uh, and what you've said, too, about democratic persuasion when it comes to religion, because I, on a lot of people's views, look, religion is different; it's sacred, and it really is cordoned off from um, from matters of public concern in a way that maybe non-religious uh, beliefs are not. And I, I just, I guess, you know, I don't, I, I reject the strong thesis of that, which is to say that you know there are really two separate spheres of religion that religion creates that makes it just immune entirely from government criticism. Uh, You know, if you think back to the cases that I was giving, uh, both of them, the Bob Jones case and the Christian Legal Society case, they have an additional argument that they can make, which is, look, this is a violation of our free exercise of religion. Uh, In both those cases, quite rightly, uh, the court said, you know, no, sorry, there is a right to free exercise, but it doesn't include the right to be immune from, at least in my terminology, democratic persuasion in the sense of revocation of funds. Uh, I make an other, I think, um, argument that I think is fundamental to even more foundational to, to making this point, uh, which is, that let's think about the idea of religious freedom itself. Uh, that is not an idea that's compatible with all religions existing as they are right now. Uh, to believe in religious freedom is to reject uh, not only some religious beliefs, but beliefs that were thought to be foundational. Uh, for one thing, it's to uh, reject the idea of theocracy, which is the idea that religion isn't only the truth, but it's the source of political authority. Uh, you can't believe in the idea of religious toleration or uh, free exercise of religion, uh, the the limits that our Establishment Clause gives uh, on state action, and think uh, that the state ought to derive all of its authority from uh, God, because you would reject the idea of tolerating uh, uh, religions that were at odds, um, with, with your own, that, that entails a kind of privileging of religion that, that the idea of religious freedom itself is incompatible with. So it's got to be the case, I think that not only is religious toleration compatible with democratic persuasion, but in some sense, what's being expressed through democratic persuasion is an idea of religious toleration and a criticism of, of groups that refuse to, uh, Refuse to recognize it. So, Bob Jones, when they claim that they have a, re- a right of religious freedom to engage in this kind of internal discrimination, and that gives them an entitlement to funds, my response is they do have a right to do it free from coercion. That's what toleration is about, and that's the framework that I've introduced. We can't sanction a religion, I don't think, for its views, no matter how heinous they are. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're entitled to a kind of subsidy. Uh, to go back, to this panel from the from the Federal Society a lot of people worry that the state in 501c3 status it prohibits churches from endorsing political candidates and a lot of churches not a lot but some are, are resisting this and they endorsed Romney for instance uh, in, in the election others actually endorsed Obama um, but there's a trade off that comes with the, the subsidy of 501c3 status and the tax deductibility one of the trade offs is that, re- that churches agree not to endorse candidates but more controversial perhaps, but I think equally fundamentally, uh, is the idea uh, that there have to be at least some limits uh, when it comes to, um, to, to, uh, to to discrimination, if they are to receive funds. Um, so, uh, you know, I take the very controversial stand. There's a, a, a very controversial case involving the Westboro Baptist Church. Right. This is a, a church that protests at military funerals. Uh, um, they have a bizarre view that military deaths are God's punishment for America's complicity in gay rights. And they come up at these funerals to protest uh, America's complicity in gay rights and also to say that the military dead are a direct result of that. That is a pretty heinous viewpoint. I happen to agree with the Supreme Court, which protected the right of these groups uh, within certain limits to protest at these funerals as a matter of free speech. Uh, you know, especially when they're not within view of the of the mourner, they're trying to get on television. Uh, they're addressing third parties, as it will. Th- they have a right, certainly, to be free from criminal punishment. And I even agreed with the court's claim um, that the tort of emotional distress in this case um, uh, uh, couldn't limit the free speech right. That it that it it, it was incompatible with the free speech protection. Uh, but it does seem to me to be. The case that if we're going to extend that level of protection, Justice Alito, by the way, dissented in that case. But if we are to extend that level of protection, uh, I don't see why uh, the Westboro Baptist Church is entitled to uh, the tax deductible contributions, why it's entitled to a subsidy. Uh, it can be uh, in a different category uh 501c4 for instance uh uh without getting uh the state subsidy of ideas that really are not just heinous but are the most opposed to the most basic uh values of any liberal
0: democracy right so let me let me just press once more uh, on this because um i, I guess maybe i'm um overly concerned with this distinction that had come up a little while uh, uh, earlier between the state affirming its values and making the case for its values on the one hand and then on the other hand, um, persuasion aimed at changing the beliefs of the members of the group to whom the expression is directed. Um, And I guess the worry is this. Even in the case of of subsidies, um, is is the value democrat, the upholder of value democracy, um, committed to saying to certain citizens that um, part of what their tax money is going to be spent on is programs um, by the state – aimed explicitly at getting them to change their religious beliefs.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's a good objection. Um, and uh, I think my response is this. I mean, often, you know, the, in political philosophy anyway, in political theory, the question of, of state persuasion anyway, rhetoric certainly has been a topic for a long time, but is is a relatively unique one. And so we might think that there are unique problems that come uh, with the in the idea of it that that are not part of other areas of political philosophy uh, and and this might seem like one the idea that we 're taxing people so that the state can then criticize them uh, seems to some to be a, a kind of what a, a at minimum disrespectful and illegitimate uh, but is it any different in the instance of coercion? I mean take somebody who is um, a po- i 'm trying to think of an example. Um, uh, opposed to, uh, 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 let's take an anarchist. Uh, uh, So I'm an anarchist and I'm opposed to the state criminalizing anything because I don't think there should be a a state that's there. Uh, The state, in a sense, by taking my tax money, its its existence and its use of the tax money for anything violates my belief. Uh, But it seems to me that what we say to the anarchist, is the question is whether or not the state action is justifiable or not, whether the tax and then also the action is justifiable. So if the state is banning murder and the extreme anarchist thinks the state shouldn't ban murder, uh, we just say, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but this is compatible with treating you as an equal, respecting your autonomy, even though you reject... Uh, as a matter of course, what the state is doing. Now, this is a much harder problem, of course, but I think it has the same structure, which is that in matters of coercion, we're often taxing people for state action that is at odds with their fundamental beliefs. Um, and democratic persuasion is no different. Democratic persuasion is a kind of action; it's not coercive action. In fact, it's less um, uh, 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 what is It's less potentially damaging, I think, for that reason. Uh, But it has the same structure. The state will say things that people disagree with uh, and is nothing in the fact of their disagreement, I think, that itself suggests that the state can't do it, any more so than we would think so in in coercion. And that's often, I think, going to be the case in a lot of objections to democratic persuasion is to ask whether it's also an objection to coercion. And if it's not, then I think the the objection falls.
0: Okay. Well, I – let me. Let me I, I think there's more to say about how how these two cases might, you know, how the anarchist case might not be similar, uh, uh, similar, because we're not trying in the anarchist case to get him to change his mind. We're getting, we're trying to get him to comply uh, with the rule of law. He yeah. can still be an anarchist. He can still think whatever he likes. Um, he just can't behave in the way that he thinks that he ought. Um, so yeah. again, it's it's the issue about the 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 state engaging in the project of changing your mind about something, rather than just trying to get you to comply with its rule. It's interesting. Th-
1: you seem to have the intuition, and maybe it's right, but that there is something more threatening in some way than in the in because of the worry about changing beliefs, but in the expressive power than the coercive power. In a way, my working assumption, and maybe we you know, need to think more about this, but I will say that my working assumption is that the real danger when it comes to rights is the state putting us in jail or making us do something. And the idea of the state criticizing our beliefs uh, just seems to me to be less of a threat. And I guess that's a kind of philosophical point that I, I think that when somebody... Tries to make me do something at the threat of a gun. It's just very different than when they're criticizing me. Uh, sometimes the the language of transforming beliefs, I think, can sound Big brotherish ish uh, Until we start to unpack what that means and what it really what persuasion is, is it's either criticism or, um, in the worst kind of case, condemnation and the revocation or granting of tax subsidies. Uh, but those seem to me to not trigger the sort of rights concerns uh, that exist in in um In matters of coercion of especially in criminalization uh so Jeremy Waldron you know who's defending banning hate speech that 's about putting people in jail potentially and- Right. Very different than the state criticizing me Uh, and I think I have to be careful I sometimes use the rhetoric of transforming beliefs but it's not the case state can transform your beliefs by hooking you up to a machine that then you know electronically sends uh, things into your mind to make you think different things it's got to do so through through argument and through persuasion and yes through incentives and disincentives Uh, but I just think that the threat those cases are so much lower uh, and the risk of rights violation is is non-existent in the way that it always is present when the state is acting forcefully. And our kind of fear of the of the state violating rights, to me anyway, is about the invasive state. It's about coercion, as opposed to about persuasion.
0: Well, very good. Uh, there's 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 a lot more uh, to say, and this is one of the I think real virtues of <clears throat> of your book is that it raises. Um, you know uh, every chapter raises just uh, a whole host of uh, really interesting and important uh, philosophical questions so um uh everybody out there should go get a get a copy and and read it um uh so we're almost at the end of our time together you've been very very generous and uh, uh with your time um so uh i always ask this question at the end and when somebody's just published a book it, it sure. is For- not i'm sorry
1: I was just going to say that if uh, if listeners themselves wanted to engage in this discussion and debate, there's an ongoing discussion now on the website publicreason.net. And so I just wanted to put in a plug for this uh, online symposium that then invites uh, uh, people who who are looking at the page to participate as well. And if there are any listeners out there that wanted to participate, I'd love to hear their thoughts as well.
0: Oh, excellent. Um, I, I regularly visit that site, but I had, um, uh, forgotten that they were doing a, a symposium about the book. Well, that's excellent. Um, but let me ask just to close, uh, what, what's the next project? I know it's a, it's a difficult thing to think about after you've just published a book, but, uh, what are you onto next?
1: Yeah. What, um, well, I'm, I'm very interested in the problem of punishment, as I said, uh, which has, uh, some expressive questions in it. Uh, 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 but fundamentally is about coercion, and so i'm 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 planning to uh i've written a few articles on that topic and in particular about the question of whether uh, people who e- even the worst, uh, uh, offenders, uh, are entitled to rights of citizenship, including the rights to vote, rights of free speech, rights of religious freedom. And I want to defend, uh, the compatibility of, uh, uh, the potential for, for punishment that continues to recognize civic status. Uh, so, so tentatively that, that book is called the rights of the guilty. I'm also working on a, uh, project on, um, on government powers, a more, um, a project in constitutional law uh, about the, the relation between substantive rights issues and government powers. And then finally, I, I just if I could plug my new constitutional law book, uh, Constitutional Law and American Democracy, uh, I'm working on uh, split, ver- splits of that. We've got one, one volume out and two more volumes are in progress. Uh, and that's a book that tries to use uh, political philosophy. Uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, Catherine McKinnon, uh, Ronald Dworkin to use substantial articles in, uh, in political philosophy that we paid for the rights with to frame constitutional cases. Uh, so it's both a, a casebook in constitutional law with readings in political philosophy and ethics that, that help to illuminate and frame those cases. Uh, and that's with Aspen Press. Well,
0: oh, excellent. Well, I um, will Keep an eye out for uh, the book on punishment, which is something I'm becoming interested in myself. Um, but Corey, thanks so much uh, uh, for for spending some time with us on new books in philosophy. It's it's really been great.
1: Uh, Bob, thanks so much. You've been a terrific interviewer, and I just want to uh, acknowledge and thank you for reading that book so closely, and your, your questions really uh, uh, showed a, a deep understanding of the book, and and nothing is more pleasurable for a, a political philosopher than when somebody's really followed you uh, in the most precise way, and I couldn't imagine a better interviewer.
0: Well, that's very kind. Thanks so much uh, for your time.
1: Thank you, Robert. Bob. Bye-bye now.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Professor Corey Bretschneider of Brown University. We were talking about his new book, When the State Speaks, What Should It Say, which was published by Princeton University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.